This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Century 21 Real Estate, this is The Relentless, the podcast that looks at sales differently. As entrepreneurs, we write our own playbooks. When we're thrown off course, when assumptions hold us back, we find a way to move fearlessly in a different direction. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm an author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And in a world filled with noise, there's a superpower I've developed that's helped me more than anything else. Never letting fear get in the way. That means building up confidence, taking risks, and tackling the really hard problems. And that's what we're exploring this season. How can we move fearlessly in a world filled with potential obstacles? Get ready to meet the people who transform what scares them into something that inspires them. It's time to move fearlessly and stay relentless. If you've seen the headlines, you know the signs. Extreme wildfires, stronger storms, fast rising sea levels, our planet is getting warmer. So how did it get so hot? Carbon, more than a trillion tons, trapped in the Earth's atmosphere. And if we do nothing, no exaggeration, the consequences could be apocalyptic. Where does that leave us? Where does the relentless come in? It turns out entrepreneurs have a great opportunity to move fearlessly in the face of climate change. And my guest today has some innovative ideas for how to do it. My name is Stacy Smedley. I'm currently the executive director of Building Transparency. Uh, we're a nonprofit focused on providing the free open access tools and data necessary to reduce embodied carbon emissions of construction. When Stacy Smedley was eight years old, developers raised the forest around her grandparents' house, clear-cutting the five acres where she used to play. All of the, the natural plant life uh, was scraped away and it became this you know, muddy dirt landscape and then asphalt cul-de-sacs and, um, and houses were built. And I thought, gosh, I need to grow up and find a way to, to build buildings that don't destroy nature. And I can do that by being an architect. And that's exactly what she did. Making good on eight-year-old Stacy's promise, she spent much of her career working within the construction industry on sustainable building practices. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page, before we get started, could you define two of the phrases we'll be using a lot in our conversation? The first is climate change, and the second is sustainability. Sure. So, Climate change is the effect that human-made emissions are having on the environment when it comes to climate impacts. So if you think about the increased events that we're seeing when, when we think about forest fires or hurricanes or extreme floods or droughts, the climate is changing at a rate that is much faster based on the emissions that we as humans are putting into the atmosphere. And sustainability? And sustainability is more holistic definition. Uh, if you think about everything that we do as humans that affect us sustaining a good life on this planet, it's anything to do with uh, health impacts of the choices we make around materials toxicity or the pollution we're putting into the air, the effects that we're having on animals and plants, all of those things. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Was there a moment as a kid when you connected the dots between sustainability and building Absolutely. When I was eight, I lived in a part of Oregon, in Clackamas, Oregon, that was pretty rural. 
My grandpa had bought some acreage there and built a house on this forested plot of land on a hill where my mom and I lived on the bottom floor and my grandparents lived upstairs. And so I just opened up a sliding glass door every day and I'd walk out into this forested environment with a creek and these big fir trees and blackberry bushes and deer uh, that would come visit. And I thought that was pretty normal. So that's really the experience I had as my playground uh, until I was eight. And at that age, my grandpa was getting up in years. He um, sat us down and told us he'd made the decision to sell the land that we were living on in that house. And um, he said it in such a way that I knew there was something bigger happening. I knew there was more than just, hey, this is what we're doing. And I watched, you know, first our um, our trees were all cut down. You know, the trees I used to go sit under and look up at. And I called them my green sky trees because I'd read books under them. So at the same time, I was studying Julia Morgan, who was the first female architect in California to be licensed. And she had done a whole bunch of firsts. And I thought, gosh, I need to grow up and find a way to, to build buildings that don't destroy nature. And I can do that by being an architect like Julia Morgan was. So that's really started me down the path when I was eight. I feel like I'm still trying to satisfy eight-year-old Stacy's uh, declaration of trying mm. to do that. Oh, I, I love that origin story. I'm curious, was your family connected to construction or entrepreneurialism in any way? Uh, my grandpa built the house. He was a math oh. teacher, uh, but he oh. built the house you know, himself. Um, and I watched him do that. And I think just being able to see uh, the process of what it takes to build something, coupled with getting really excited about learning about this woman, this female architect that had been first at so many things. I got this... Um, desire to be first and have positive firsts that I can contribute, I think, as I grew up. Mm. And, and how did you take all of those firsts and eventually become who you are today, the executive director of building transparency? I started by doing exactly what I, I, I intended when I was eight, which is get an architecture degree and try to design green buildings. I then met Skanska, the construction company. So I asked for a job there because I saw that I could make a bigger impact through the lens of, of sustainability and reducing environmental impacts. And then while at Skanska, I did a deep dive into carbon emissions, living in, in Washington, seeing the impacts of the forest fires and things that were happening. I really wanted to figure out how to help mitigate climate change. Skanska set some carbon emissions values and targets, and I found the source of where I could get all this data, created a tool that allows that data to be used by anyone in the industry. And that tool is really what launched the nonprofit. The tool needed a home where it could be free and open access. So it's been a circuitous journey. You know, I thought I'd be a, a green architect, um, and now I'm basically a nonprofit tech startup executive director. <laughs> <laughs> and when you say nonprofit, you mean building transparency. I do. Yes. And, and can you just explain a little bit more about what the mission and the work of building transparency is? Buildings are a huge um, contributor to the emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere as, as humans, the man-made emissions that we put into the atmosphere. And a certain component of that, over 11% of those global emissions, are the way that we actually extract and manufacture building materials. So if you think about cement or concrete and the, the emissions that go into the air to make the cement or um, for steel, the CO2, to make then manufacture those steel shapes. That's 11% of total global emissions. Building transparency, we found the source of this data, we've turned it into a free open database, and now um, there's a free tool that we host that allows anyone to go and virtually compare products and manufacturers on their carbon emissions. So that as you are selecting the products you're going to put into your buildings, you can make sure that they meet your requirements, but are also the lowest carbon option for that project. Can you give me an example of like 
some of these materials and how they directly cause carbon emissions? Is it the digging machines that are digging the things up? What, what exactly is happening, for example, with cement? Sure, there's a lot of things. So first, it's the whole process of how you make something. So it does start where you have to go get that raw ingredient. And for something like cement, it's the limestone that you're going and you're using equipment that is using gasoline and putting emissions into the air to extract those raw ingredients and then transport them on vehicles that also consume fuel and emit CO2 to a manufacturing facility. Once it's at the manufacturing facility for cement specifically, uh, you have to put things into a kiln and go through a calcinization process, which actually uh, creates CO2 and emits it into the atmosphere. So that's a process emission just in terms of how you make the cement. And cement by itself uh, is upwards of 8 9% of global CO2 emissions just by itself. Ooh. I call them hidden emissions because it's not like you look at a, you know, a concrete wall and see CO2 coming out of it. Mm-hmm. But there's all these hidden emissions that were um, put into the atmosphere to make that concrete wall. And that's what we're trying to tackle. Now, to play devil's advocate here for a second, a lot of businesses will say, well, sustainability, it's too expensive. It's not good for business. Um, you know, it's something we hear constantly from a lot of giant corporations that, you know, paying attention to the environment, being good stewards of the earth, that it's just not good for business. What do you say to those people? I say, well, first, um, it depends on what your priorities are and what good for business means. But in this space around uh, material emissions, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that actually isn't going to cost you anymore. It's just about having this data as part of your decision-making process. We see big owners like Amazon or Microsoft uh, requiring this kind of disclosure at time of selection of the product. And just because they're requiring it, they can see that there might be a 30 to 50% difference in the emissions of two products that are on the market today. Um, They just didn't know that before. And then I also think there's a lot of regulation coming. So it's going to be something that you have to do uh, where you're disclosing the emissions of what you're buying. The SEC has some rulings out there. There's insurance companies looking at how they require ESG reporting or carbon accounting as part of how they assess an asset. So smart business might just mean that you are getting ahead of the, the regulations that are coming too. If a developer or people in the real estate community are trying to commit to reducing carbon emissions, but they don't know where to start, what advice would you give them? A a concrete first step. Sifting through the noise of all the things that you could focus on in the sustainability space, finding one or two that um, resonate with you or your company and tackling those first. I think a lot of the times it can feel overwhelming because there's so much if you think about everything, every way that we impact the environment. But if all of us just focus in on one or two and get knowledgeable about those and bring that knowledge to our companies as something to act on, we'll be making progress. There's also tons of resources. I mean, the Urban Land Institute's a really good one for uh, urban developers. There's work happening with some of the residential housing organizations, Master Builders Association. There are some good organizations where they're building content and really doing peer-to-peer connecting. Yeah, we don't have to go it alone. We can tap into all the knowledge that people like you have been working so hard to accrue for the rest of us. So I think that's great. I also love what you're saying that we don't have to master everything, just one or two or three areas that we focus on can still make a difference. We don't have to do everything. I imagine that must translate also to individual homeowners like myself. I am not somebody in construction or real estate development, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there are one or two just you know small steps I can take to be smarter, to be more sustainable with either home renovations or just with how my home is set up. What, what advice would you give me about where to start there? 
So I think, first of all, you know, there are the two, two types of emissions that are associated with even our, our homes. It's the energy that we use. And then on the embodied carbon side, those carbon emissions of materials, you know, I'm sitting in my um, my basement studio and I've got gypsum board on my walls and carpet under my feet. And again, you're not seeing emissions spitting out of those things, but just knowing that they're there. The next time you go to renovate your house, maybe you could look at and ask for um, the environmental impacts of the products you're looking at just like you would for the cost of those products uh, and make an informed decision, at least with that in mind. Well, obviously we should all be making low carbon decisions, but we're still at a stage, at least in the U.S. and, you know, outside the U.S. too, let's be frank, where not everyone has the mindset where this is something they feel they can focus on or that they agree that it's real. Are there valuable statistics or arguments that you found that are particularly effective when it comes to inspiring people to be more sustainable with real estate, with construction, or just with their viewpoint on all of these issues? You know, we talk about climate change, and I think as that becomes something that's more experienced by more people, it's easier to make the connection between that and, you know, man-made impacts that have accelerated it. So I think it's exposure to that, unfortunately, that is going to help some folks along when it affects them personally. You know, we get smoke here in Seattle that is much more frequent. I lived in the Pacific Northwest my whole life growing up. That never happened. Now my son, who's 11, has experienced, you know, days or weeks of smoke in the air every year of his life. In your ideal world, what kind of world would you want your son to grow up in? I mean, the one that I did. <laughs> I guess I get emotional, actually. I want him to experience what I did when I was eight, being in that place with the trees and the healthy air and not worrying about um, the fact that that's changing. So if there's a world in the future where we are living in perfect harmony with the earth and we understand our impacts and our, have reduced them to a point where we don't have to, to worry about that anymore, there's so much innovation that is necessary, but that's being worked on. It would be a world where he's not worried about it, but we've we've learned how to live in harmony again. And Stacy, how do you talk to your son about the state of the world? If you were to, you know, give some words of reassurance to your own son or to anybody else out there, what words of reassurance would you give or what hard realities would you share? I do talk to him about this. I mean, you know, uh, we started building transparency during COVID and he was sitting across the table from me, you know, doing school, hearing me talk to all of these people about all of these things. And he'd ask questions. We, we need to be honest with our kids. That's a general statement. And they need to understand the reality of things. Um, we need to do that in a way that inspires them to take action on it, just like I did. So for him, it's, you know, here's where we are. Um, here's the state of things and, and here's where it could go. But, you know, your mom's doing everything she can uh, to make a difference, to help mitigate that. And you can too. I mean, he came up with an idea for a, um, a pollution sucking robot that would be, you know, driving down the street with sensors in it that could, you know, pull the CO2 out of the air treat it like plants do and put oxygen back out the other end. And he's that was when he was eight. I love that. That That is amazing. Now, Stacy, I am very lucky that in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, there are a number of buildings that are actually rated A, B, C, substandard, based on how environmentally responsible the buildings are. This is totally separate from, you know, the LEED certification. This is uh, how the energy is... Um, wasted in the building, how green the energy is that's used to keep the building going and so on. Do you think a rating system like that would ever work nationwide? And or is there actually something similar to that that exists already nationwide? 
I like the move to more of a ABCDE report card, uh, ABCDF, whatever you want to say, where it resonates with the, you know, the, the typical human who's used mm-hmm. to things getting grades. Um, and there are some programs that are looking at that too. The work that we're doing, you know, what I what I kind of see around the corner, if I could do this and just say, go do this, is if you think about the nutrition label on food, uh, it became something that was required and standardized as a requirement, right? Through the, the federal government where every food item and now it's global. You know, you go, to, you go to any place and you can look up the calorie content or the ingredients to your your food product before you buy it if you want to. Um, I would love to have building nutrition labels that give you all this information very transparently and standardized um, that becomes a global standard. So we just walk around and it becomes something that we can look at if we want to in a format we recognize. And then that can go into risk assessments, financial loan assessments, consumer purchasing requirements. I would love to have building nutrition labels give us all the environmental impacts of every of every building in the world. Oh, I would love that too. Yeah, especially if it was all over the world. I think a lot of people who are looking for a place to live and real estate agents who are, you know, selling properties, showing properties and so on, I think it would benefit everybody across the board. Yeah, so we'll see. Maybe someday. <laughs> We've talked a lot about carbon emissions today. Besides carbon emissions, what other factors come into play when thinking about sustainability and construction? First is water consumption, the amount of water that we use and the scarcity of water in some places now, even in the U.S., California comes to mind, how we design and operate our buildings to um, use less water, recycle water. There's also waste. Waste is a big one, actually. So if you think about when you build a house or renovate a house or on a large project, you know, you're building a big commercial office building. There's a big percentage of those materials that you know you cut off. You use only a certain piece of the gypsum board uh, that go into a landfill if you're not being responsible about it and trying to get those materials back into you know recycling. Waste is one that I actually think needs to get more attention as we start to think about you know circularity of materials and how we can reduce those raw ingredients that we're using. Yes, yes, and that is something we're seeing in other industries now too, like fashion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about all the clothes that we make and then we send them to the Goodwill and then we buy new stuff all the time. Um, it's the same kind of consumerism and construction materials where we buy the new product and we don't think about as much the thing that we're, you know, we're throwing away. All sorts of sectors, as you said, not just with construction, but just with what we consume for our own homes or bodies or uh, day-to-day life and so on. Now, all this season, Stacy, on The Relentless, we are doing a deep dive into the idea of moving fearlessly. What does the phrase moving fearlessly mean to you? Well, for me personally, it was it was not waiting till I knew everything or things were perfect, largely because when it comes to climate change, I think there's a cons- uh, consistent message that there's urgency right now around solutions. But I think it's it's okay not to have everything figured out. If you have a good idea or you feel compelled to do something, simply start. And that added knowledge and the the kind of striving for perfection can come over time. That's a lesson I've learned through what we've done with EC3, where we started with imperfect data and only a set of categories. And just so we're clear here, EC3 means embodied carbon emissions, the carbon that lives in all the materials and processes used in construction. We didn't have every construction material covered. We didn't really know where the tool was going to go post-launch when we put it out there into the world publicly. Uh, but we just did it. And now we're up to 30,000 users in 70 countries. So, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay to admit that you don't know everything. And I think just doing that sometimes can be hard. Mm, I, I think it is for a lot of us. 
Can you tell me about a time when you had to think strategically so the fear wouldn't take over? For a lot of us, the fear does take over and we spiral and we just feel like paralyzed. Is there an example you can give where you strategically didn't let that fear take over? I think I'm I'm constantly trying to do that. I think right now, I feel like knowledge is power. So the more I know and understand the problem and the source of the fear, the more I can at least do what I can to help make the change necessary. Right now, I'm reading a couple of books to try to I think, remind myself of all of it, but also educate myself so I can say, okay, I've, I've gotten this one thing tackled now. I think we're doing okay when it comes to construction embodied carbon emissions. What's the next thing that I can help with? How am I going to put my, my fear to good use uh, to drive more action? Mm, putting fear to good use to drive action. That, that's such a constructive way to uh, think about fear rather than something that immobilizes us, something that drives us forward. And as an everyday goal, what is one practice, just one simple thing a real estate agent could do that would help them keep an eye on sustainability? You know, if I put myself in a real estate agent's shoes. I would say just having climate or um, sustainability as something that they're looking at or thinking about on every home that they are putting up for sale or helping their, their home buyer purchase. So just having it as a line item <laughs> uh, in the list of things that you're assessing each house with. I think the other thing is just, just have this in your mind in the context of what you're thinking about when you think about the work that you do. And that's probably pretty broad. That's not just for you know folks in real estate, but really for anyone. We need to have carbon and climate and sustainability as a language that we speak. Uh, we don't have to all be fully literate in it yet, but it at least needs to be something that we can understand. Mm. And... Stacy, what are you hopeful about for the future? So I told you I'm scared. We're not going to do everything fast enough. But I'm also hopeful at the increase in speed that I'm experiencing in the work that we're doing, but also uh, witnessing. And that's coming from a, a number of places. I think first, the conversation around climate uh, is something that used to not be in the in the news, um, you know, hardly ever. And we're seeing it now being talked about and and presented in ways that we didn't just a handful of years ago. So it's just becoming something that's more um, understood and, and talked about, which is the first step to getting more folks to really take action on it. Um, there's also all sorts of private companies. Um, again, Amazon, Microsoft are our partners. There's developers that are setting these targets and commitments to reducing their impacts. And there's policy coming. There's the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed with billions and billions of dollars in it related to construction, procurement of low-carbon materials, and uh, investments in ways to decarbonize things like cement. So companies that are coming up with new ways to make cement or steel can get money from the federal government right now uh, to test those products and to actually bring them to scale and then have the funding on the procurement side to actually purchase them. Uh, through 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 funding in the IRA. So there's just so much more happening today than there was a handful of years ago. Um, and I'm just so blessed to feel like I can help touch some of that work. Uh, that gives me hope. Well, we feel so fortunate to have you share that hope with us because it really can feel like a subject of existential dread, uh, like something that is beyond our control and we can't fix this. But talking with you today, uh, I feel more hopeful. I feel like you know, there are a lot of things to be afraid of, but there are things that we can do. So Stacy Smedley, thank you so much for stopping by The Relentless to talk us through these fears and to share your wisdom. Thanks so much. In a minute, we'll hear how a Century 21 broker got his extraordinary work ethic. Stay with us. 
Here's a real estate reality check from me, a Century 21 affiliated agent. Looking to sell your home? It might be time to take away the personal touch. In fact, it may be the thing that takes your home from on the market to sold. Century 21 affiliated agents like me can help stage your home for success. Is why we've got a 98% recommendation rate. Now, let's get to work. Century 21, move fearlessly. Each office is independently owned and operated. Century 21 is a registered trademark owned by Century 21 Real Estate, LLC. And we're back. It's not every day I get to meet a Century 21 affiliate like Julio. My name is Julio Cardenas, and I am the broker of Century 21 King here in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Back when Julio was a sophomore in high school, he noticed a teacher with a really nice car. I thought, hmm, what is it about this teacher that is different than all the others? It came up that he sold real estate during the summertime. So that's what originally piqued my interest in uh, real estate and getting into real estate. Julio didn't come from a real estate family. His parents were immigrants from Mexico, and from a young age, he saw their determination to provide for their family. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, She raised five of us. Uh, My father was uh, in construction. He worked at a fence company, putting up, you know, the block walls that are put up on the freeways. And what lessons about hard work and entrepreneurship did you learn from your parents? Because you obviously work very hard and you're an entrepreneur at this point. My father, he would work Monday through Friday with the construction company. And then on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, he would go and do his own work in construction as well. There were neighbors or people in the neighborhood that wanted uh, a block wall, wanted some masonry work done, wanted cement. And so my father, I remember him taking me, I was nine at the time, so uh, to uh, some job sites that he had for the weekend on Saturdays and Sundays. And, And it later turned on to he had so much work on the weekends that He had to eventually quit his job because he um, had enough work to do and break off on his own. Mm. So he was really good at what he did. Yeah, absolutely. So from junior high to high school, I worked with him in his company. He was relentless when it came to attention to detail And he was relentless when it came to customer service. He never advertised. It was just word of mouth. And he was busy all the time. So that showed what great customer service he had. Wow. That must have been the best education to grow up with a father who owned his own business, who was so good at running his own business that he no longer needed a day job. I I don't know if you saw the expression on my face when you said he never had to advertise. That is a dream come true for any company. I mean, that can be a huge part of our budget to advertise and to hustle and to try and get our names out there as entrepreneurs. But the fact that he could just do it strictly based on the quality of his work and his reputation is phenomenal. That's incredible. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Now, can you talk about the Century 21 brokerage you own and how you um, developed that and how you've grown your team? I got my license when I was 20. I sold real estate for 17 years as an agent. And then an opportunity came for me to manage 
a company for a broker. And I took that opportunity. I was told years ago that an agent that goes from agent to manager, then owner, has a higher success rate than the person that goes agent straight to owner. Then the opportunity came to own my own business in 2008 when the market started to crash. And 15 years later, the care and hard work you put into the brokerage, it really shows, even with market ups and downs. What tips do you have for other folks just starting out about growing your team, about working with those, you know, challenges that you had to deal with back then and then rebounding and building what you have now? Real estate, it's more about your mental capacity to handle rejection at the end of the day. You got to fall in love with the word no, but those no's have to be there in order for you to get to the yeses. And so it's cliche. However, if you're going to build a business, you have to be one of those that actually do the work. Yeah. When I'm leading workshops with others, I always say, I get nine no's for every one yes on a good day. And I wouldn't get that one yes, though, if I didn't, you know, pound the phone for those other nine calls. And I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as um, a sign that I'm doing my work. You know, it's just knowing those ratios. It's just part of the job. And and what is the alternative to not make any phone calls at all? <laughs> right. And final question what are you excited about for the future? So I'm excited about opportunity for the future. Right now, uh, the real estate market, it's already shifted. Uh, We're inching closer to a buyer's market, uh, but there's still a shortage of homes. I'm excited about the opportunity that that brings. In real estate, uh, these types of markets are what make agents truly agents, meaning The market we're coming out of, at least in Southern California, you put a house on the market in one day, you have 20, 30, 40, 50 offers and the house is selling 100,000 above asking price. That's an anomaly. That rarely happens. We're going into a normal market where agents can learn the business wholly and truly. You can do an open house. You have to communicate with sellers a little longer. You have to learn, uh, practice your sales skills. You have to practice scripts, learn what to say. Because in a market that we're just coming out of, you could have had your license for one day. You go list the house, it sells, you get a paycheck. Well, that's not what real estate has historically been. Oh, that's a great perspective on something that not everybody in real estate is excited about. But it's that sense of perspective that is part of why we see you as such a fearless owner-broker. So thank you so much for sharing that perspective. And Julio, thanks so much for joining us today on The Relentless. Thank you for having me. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Century 21 Real Estate. You can find out more about the guests you heard in today's show and discover more great material from our Century 21 partners at Slate dot com slash C21 Relentless. I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. All rights reserved. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. 
This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion.